0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Alejandro Zita. He is the president of Prosperity Lending, based in California, that helps average people get mortgages and qualify for mortgages they might find difficult to do otherwise. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Alejandro. Thank, thank you, Jordan. Very pleased to meet you, and thank you for inviting me to your show. Just give us a brief background of how you got to where you are today, just briefly.
2: Um, it was by accident. It was simply because uh, I used to be in the infomercial business, in the advertising business, and one of my best clients invited me to a financial seminar. Okay. And that's basically how it began. You said very short, so that's why I'm... Okay, and what sure. happened at
1: that, okay let's do a little bit more. You, you went to the seminar, then what happened from there to get you into the mortgage business?
2: Well, you know, since I was seven years of age, I was always interested in finance. And uh, after I went to that seminar back in 2004, I believe, or 2003, I decided that that was my, 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 my next career or, or, my, next, or my, next, uh, my next career, yes.
1: Okay. <laughs> and so you, you uh, got into the mortgage business yourself and then you formed your own company, Prosperity Lending. When did that happen? Well, that didn't happen that easy. You know, at the beginning, I was working for a broker
2: um, for for a number of years. Then I was working for another broker, and he was my mentor. I basically was his slave, you may say. I did everything for him that I could possibly think of. And I was with him for 10 years. And that's when I really, really learned about real estate, commercial real estate, loans, you name it. And then after that is when I started my company. So my company is somewhat new. I started in 2018,
1: but I have been in this field since 2003 or earlier. Okay, let's take a broad look at, we're gonna get into the details of how you can help people get mortgages and so on, but let's take a start with a broad view of the market. Interest rates have risen sharply on mortgages, I think it's almost up to 6% or high 5%, something like that now. How has the rise in interest rates affected the mortgage market and people's ability to qualify for mortgages these days? It has affected it a lot. You know, a couple
2: of months ago, people were fighting for a home. You had offers that far exceeded the asking price. And now it's the complete reverse. Now, homes still sell, you know, and you still get offers, but you don't get a number of offers for properties. You don't get exceed excesses of the asking price when i say excesses i mean a house being sold for 600 offers nearing the 700,000 mark so you're not seeing that anymore you're not seeing this frenzy to buy that you used to see before but just a little comment when i started in this industry a good rate a deal quote unquote was seven and a half so even though rates are in the fives in the sixes and if you are a high net worth individual or you want to buy an expensive home, they are closer to the sevens. That's still, it's a very good deal when you consider where we're coming from and where we're going to.
1: Do you think that the, the housing market, the mortgage market got too hot? Was it overheated and overhyped like a year ago when there were multiple offers on homes?
2: <sighs> That's a very tough question to answer because the answer is yes. But part of the heating of the of the market, in my opinion, is because of all the interference that you have from different actors into the market. If you would, would leave the market to its own devices, it would be heated, but it would probably not be to the level that we're seeing today. So, okay, so t- what actors are you talking about that overheated the market? The Federal Reserve, you know, the government, all the different incentives. You see, people forget where we are today. They think, or I would say, let, let me rephrase. It's hard to imagine where we are today if we don't look at the past. And when I, when I talk about the past, I'm not talking about a year or two or three or four. We need to go all the way back to the 1950s, all the way back to the 1930s. We need to go all the way back to before the 30-year mortgage even existed to see how mortgages were done compared to today. And then you have things, for instance, like the mortgage deduction. The mortgage deduction allows people to deduct the interest they are paying on their mortgage, you know, on your tax return. That sounds good on the surface, right? You get to deduct your home, I mean the interest you pay, it sounds good, but that, the net effect of that is that that increases prices. Then when the Federal Reserve says, you know, and I'm not talking about about now, I'm talking about earlier, when they say we're going to stimulate the economy or we're going to lower the rate, that has two problems. One, yes, you lower the rate, yes, you lower the payment, but that makes houses more expensive. And then on the flip side of it, you know, you always have a credit and a debit. And sometimes we don't think about it. When you lower the rates on loans, you're also lowering the rates on pension funds, on investments, on savings. So not only you make houses more expensive, people now make less money on their savings. And therefore, that depletes the whole economy. And everything goes down where the original intent was to, help people borrowing I don't know if I'm making any sense
1: no I do but now they're doing the opposite I mean they were they were doing easing money because of COVID Uh, they wanted to put a lot of money into the economy to avoid a depression because of COVID now they're reversing things they're buying back uh, money they're raising interest rates Uh, they're tightening the. so so you're saying that's a good thing what they're doing because it was it was too easy before actually this is where it becomes complicated and
2: um and i'm sorry if i sound a little bit like 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 cryptic to the members of your audience it's not my intention to do that but right now that action is bad and let me tell you why it's bad the reason we have uh problems is not because of the rate the reason we have inflation is not because of the rate the reason we have the inflation in part is because governments collapse the economy on the excuse of the pandemic. So now all of these problems of supply line things don't, don't get not getting into the stores, you know, now with the war in Europe and with the impending world war III that everybody's talking about, all of these things have created an actual an actual scarcity of goods. That scarcity is what is, what is driving the price up. So in the past like in the 1980s for example, when the Federal Reserve raised the rate, it was actually to, to, to depress demand, depress prices a little bit because they were getting out of control. But now the reason why the prices are going up is very different from the 1980s. So the, 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 the tool that worked in the 80s is not gonna work now because what is happening by the Fed raising the rates, what they're doing is making the scarce goods that are already pricey even more expensive, because the, to finance those goods, now you need to pay more for financing. But if they don't do anything, they're gonna be criticized that they're not doing anything, and the only tool they have at their disposal is the rate. And I'm not trying to bash the Fed, I don't think that they're doing a bad or a good job, it's just that this is it's another chaotic element added to the
1: mixture that in this case is making things worse, in my opinion. So the Federal Reserve is trying to slow the housing market because they thought it got too hot and they didn't want 60 offers over asking price, all cash. Uh, so they, they're raising rates in order to have housing prices not go up so much and possibly go down and make it less affordable for people. I mean, this is their policy. This is not a mistake on their part. You, you think that their policy is wrong, that they should not be trying to cool off what, was, what had been a super hot housing market? The answer is yes uh because it's not just about
2: the housing market the housing market is part of it but when the fed raises the rate it doesn't only affect mortgage loans it affects business loans it affects uh, normal regular loans like 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 a, like a, like a, like a credit cards credit card loans so the net effect it goes way beyond the housing market it affects like government loans too you know there is a lot of people abroad that have borrowed in us dollars so This height, we have to look at it not just from the point of view of the housing market, but all of the repercussions that it has on all of the other markets all over the world. And then there is something else that is, in my opinion, behind all this. You see, people don't have to be economists. They don't have to have a degree on economic or they don't have to have a master's on anything. People see instinctively uh, what is going on, you know with their money. They see that their money is losing value. So anyone that has any savings is trying to put it somewhere. And with the pandemic, the government made available hundreds of thousands of dollars to regular people. And those regular people are trying to put their money somewhere. And that's partially what's behind the housing uh,
1: um, craze, in my opinion. That people were putting money into real estate instead of keeping it in savings where they were going to earn nothing, basically. So it it added more... Uh, money and more speculative interest to real estate than it would have been otherwise, you're saying. Exactly. In in, in an effort to help, all of these measures of
2: free money, you know, or SBA loans, this and that, low rates, all of these
1: are creating the opposite effect. So, you uh, know, uh, your area's housing, is it more difficult now to get a, um, a mortgage than it was, say, before the pandemic? I mean, I know the rates have gone up, but as far as the application process and being approved i would say it's the same and
2: uh, i would say today it's easier to get a loan um, than than pretty much ever except when we go back to the 1960s and the 1970s in my opinion it was easier than to get a loan than it is today but pre-pandemic or after the pandemic i would say it's equally easy
1: to get a loan i've been seeing lately that a lot of mortgage companies are laying off people by the thousands. I think JP Morgan just laid off hundreds of mortgage bankers. Is it going to be a problem that there aren't going to be as many people to work with at these mortgage companies because demand is down so much? You know,
2: um, demand is down because refinancing is down. And it's not going to be a problem because mortgage companies are very flexible. If they see the demand coming up, they hire more people. When they see the demand slowing down, they fire people. So this is in direct response to the lower demand
1: for mortgages. So the good news is it's still, if you can afford it, the process of, of qualifying for mortgage is not as bad. People yeah. thought it got worse, uh, particularly after the pandemic. Correct. Correct. It, it, it is worse in
2: the sense that if you got fired, if you don't have your job anymore, if you don't have savings, if your credit score got, 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 got hit, you know, by the pandemic and by, by all the consequences of the pandemic, yes, it's going to take a little bit of a runway to get there but it has not
1: affected the the lending standards per se. Very good. After the break, we're going to come back and get into more detail about what uh, steps you can take to uh, improve your credit score and uh, qualify for lending and get the best possible rate out there, which is what Alejandro is an expert on. Uh, My guest this hour is Alejandro Zita. Uh, He is the president of Prosperity Lending, based in California. And you can see more about him and his company at ProsperityLending.us. We'll be back after this. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to robotics to cybersecurity, where companies spend 150 billion dollars a year, our crowd is identifying innovators, so you can invest where growth potential is greatest early in the process. Our crowd is the fastest-growing venture capital investment community. Our crowd's accredited investors have already used the platform to invest over one billion dollars in growing tech companies. Twenty-one of the portfolio companies are unicorns, and many of our crowd's members have benefited from over 50 IPOs, or sale exits, of portfolio companies. Now you can invest in Sotero, which has developed a patented new approach to data protection that eliminates the gaps of traditional methods, securing any data asset, whether it's on-premise or in the cloud. Sotero is trusted by one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies explore sotera's potential at slash answers you can join our crowd for free at slash answers join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at slash answers
3: nobody likes the guy who says i told you so the guy in 1991 who said to you invest in the internet it's going to be huge Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is gonna be big, they call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not gonna be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21 year old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life.
4: Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog?
1: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Alejandro Zita. He is the president of Prosperity Lending, which is a California-based company that helps people get mortgages, and specifically, people who are self-employed. Welcome back to the show, Alejandro. Thank you, Jordan. Let's specifically talk about what are the issues for self-employed people uh, applying for mortgages.
2: Self-employed people usually own their own business or they are successful artists. And they usually have the income, they have the reserves, and they usually can afford to buy their home. And their first instinct is to go to their lender, to go to their banker, and just say, you know, I need a mortgage to buy a home. And initially, everything goes well. They say, their, bank, their banker says, not a problem, fill these forms, you know, or they go to, 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 their, to their trusted mortgage broker, everything looks fine and the problems begin when they run their credit report. Usually, self-employed people or business people or small and entrepreneurs, when I say small entrepreneurs, I, m- I mean entrepreneurs that make, let's say, less than $500,000 per year net income, work on cash flow. They work on profits, but they work on cash flow, meaning that their job is to allocate their cash flow into the most profitable or the most um, generating revenue generating activity. So what happens is they don't tend to look at a credit report. They do pay their bills, but that's not the number one priority. So then their lender or banker runs the credit report. They find what to me has always been, because I am one of those people too, they find some late here and there. You know They find issues that are really not important. However, their credit score gets hit and that's when the problem begins. Then when it comes to, 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 to showing the income or, or documenting how they make the income, most business people, especially small business people, will look at the tax return as a bill. When you have a bill, what do you try to do? Especially if you have control over your income, you try to reduce the bill. So when a lender wants to evaluate The self-employed or the entrepreneur based on the tax return is like counterintuitive. Why would a lender do that? But that's what lenders do. So because they have problems documenting their income because they have issues that are very easily to resolve on the credit report. And also because their business model sometimes is not understood by the lender. Now the lender or the mortgage broker sees they need to put more time into it. And the, and the lending industry is not geared for that. The lending industry now is down to a science in which everything has to fit into a box and things are done very fast. So nobody wants to really work on this because, quote-unquote, is not profitable to them. So that's the railroad. And that's how, the, in my opinion, the business owner gets railroaded. He gets all of this, what to him are like
1: like insignificant details stopping
2: him to do the law
1: so somebody comes to you who's a self-employed person with a successful business they've been turned down by their bank because there's not something in their credit report what can you do to turn around the situation
2: well the first thing we do believe it or not is listen sometimes i listen for one hour i just want to have the full picture you see which is completely counterintuitive the mortgage interest industry doesn't want to do that they want to say jordan Give me this and this and this, answer these three questions, and then we'll see if you qualify. We don't do that at all. We do the opposite. We do it the old-fashioned way, like in the 1960s, in the 1970s, when you used to go to your banker, and the banker knew everything about you, and they could very quickly structure a loan. So the first thing we do is just listen. Then after we listen, we do a credit report check. When I say a credit report check, I mean we do what is called a soft pull. A soft pull means It doesn't exist, it's not an inquiry, it doesn't affect your scores. However, we we get all the information we need. Once we do the soft pool, having listened to the borrower to begin with, now I know what is happening. And now we can craft a very easy and sometimes quick, when I say quick, I'm talking about 30 days, 60 days, ways to improve their credit. And just very quickly I'll tell you, we are working with a very successful lawyer and then we ran their final soft check a couple of days ago He went from 640 to 707. So that's a 65 or more uh, points increase just by moving things around here and there. Although we we don't, you know, I just want to say a little disclaimer. We're not in the business of like fixing credit reports for people. That's just a service
1: that we provide to borrowers that are applying through a loan with us. So the borrowers have to make the moves. You just tell them what to do. So what are some of the common things that people can do to improve their credit score, based on what you see.
2: The believe it or not, the the thing that that is most difficult to explain is that a credit score does not measure your success, doesn't measure your how 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 moral or how good you are. It's a tool invented by bondholders to spot their most profitable clients. See, okay? it's completely different. So they have rules that have nothing to do with, you know, you always hear, oh, if you want to have a good credit report, pay your bills on time, scrap that. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do how you pay your bills so you will be the most profitable candidate for bondholders. And those rules seem counterintuitive. I'll tell you a couple. For instance, you go and you get a credit card. You get a credit card for $5,000. According to the bondholders, if you only use $500 of that $5,000 credit card, 10%, then you're quote unquote good. Why would anybody take a $5,000 credit card just to use 500? That doesn't make any sense, especially not to an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is completely different. Entrepreneur says, hey, I got $5,000, I can make this deal right now, I can make seven, I can pay the five, make a profit of two, why not? That's the mentality of the entrepreneur. The, The mentality of the bond holder is, hey, you're asking me for a loan, I just want you to use a little bit, and therefore, in my view, you are responsible and therefore i'm going to credit you with a higher score that's one thing another thing you are an entrepreneur you're paying you're paying your 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 bills you know I have a, a client who, when you run your his credit report, he has forty paid mortgages on time, forty paid mortgages that's very hard to find by the way, on anyone, however, his score is not that great. And on the flip side of it, I have a young girl that has three credit cards, that had it for a couple of years, she's not using them much, and she has over 150 points more than this guy who is a millionaire who's already paid 40 mortgages. So you go, how come? The reason how come is because you in your mind, you're using a set of rules that the bondholders are not using. So one of them is you, you get all this money, You only use a little bit. Then another thing is you have to pay it all time. A a business owner doesn't think that way. He thinks, you know what, I'm going to be late a few days. I'm going to pay the extra charge, but I don't care because with this money, I'm going to buy now this inventory, which is at a discount, and then when I sell it, I make more. And that makes total sense. And the business owner will pay his bill, will pay the extra late charge, and he would think nothing of it. However, to a bondholder, that's bad because you didn't pay your bill on time, and because you became, quote-unquote, risky to his eyes.
1: And that's what's behind the FICO score. So what can you do if you've had a legitimate late, you did in fact pay late and paid a late fee, what can you do to take off bad information like that if in fact it's true? If in fact it's true today, there is almost nothing you
2: can do about it. Because before you could you, you could call the uh, the credit card company and as as an as as an as an accommodation sometimes they would remove it, but now they are very strict. They don't want to do that. So what you have to do is build other factors that are going to compensate for that late. Like what are some of those factors? For instance, you can get a new credit card and pretty much don't use it, or you can get an installment loan and then then just pay it, just just. Just to build scores, not because you need the loan.
1: So the most important thing is to pay on time. Latenesses is really what, where your score starts going down badly. Is that
2: right? Yeah, L- late, latenesses and using all or more than 50% of your, of your, of your cre- cre-
1: credit, uh, credit, credit capacity. So you're saying at approaching the situation, people should always pay on time. And use less than fifty percent of capacity or they're gonna their score is gonna get hurt, which is gonna affect their ability to get a mortgage. They might be able to get a mortgage, but at a higher rate. I mean, just give us a sense of how much more interest rate you would pay on a mortgage if your score is whatever, six fifty versus seven hundred, just just roughly. Between one to two points more.
2: That's a lot. That's a lot. And then one thing that I would say very quickly is that if you are a business owner, business owners, we tend to be very bad at that. Hire someone. Hire someone to pay your bill on time because it's not a matter of money. It's a matter of doing it. And to a business owner that is so immaterial, they don't want to waste time on that. But you have to. So hire someone. That is always my advice.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So when when you tell this to self-employed people, are they happy that you're saving them or do they resent to the the banks? They're saying, I'm not going to do it.
2: It's a process. It's a process. It's a very frustrating process. And I know that we're going to head a break, so I'm going to try to be fast. It's a process because the business owner, when they come to me, they feel ashamed. Their bank or mortgage company has made them feel less because they are late or they have made them feel less successful. So when they come to us, it's a feeling of guilt, a feeling of shame. We have to overcome that. And then we have to say, hey, you don't have to be ashamed for this. This is a way to handle it. So it's a process. After the process, after we are done with it, they feel relieved.
1: But that doesn't happen right away. Yeah, indeed. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Alejandro Zita. He is the president of Prosperity Lending, which is a California-based company that helps particularly self-employed people get mortgages and help them go through the whole mortgage process. You can find out more about him and his company at his website, prosperitylending.us.
4: Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements, discover the true value of your life insurance, 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Alejandro Zita. Uh, He is a mortgage expert. He is the president of Prosperity Lending, which you can find out more about at prosperitylending.us. Welcome back to the show, Alejandro. Thank you, Jordan. A pleasure to be here. So once you've got somebody through the process, how can they find the best mortgage? Should they just go online? I mean, there's many, many places you can just apply online to a national company like a Rocket Mortgage or something. Why do they need to stay local when they can get the national market to compete for them?
2: Jordan, this is an excellent question, and thank you for asking me this question. You are one of the first persons that ever asked me this question, and I think it's the most important question to answer. Mortgages have been portrayed as something like, 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 a, like an actual commodity that you can go to a supermarket and buy, like buying like an apple, for instance. But a mortgage is not an apple. A mortgage is not an actual commodity. A mortgage is really a financial instrument that is tailor-made to you. So yes, you can go to a website, you can put your information, you can get a quote, but that, those things are meaningless. They are completely meaningless. I will tell you why. Usually lenders have this complicated algorithm that, that requires about 20 data points from you, meaning your income, your job, where you live, the house, blah, blah, blah. It's like 20 variables, 20 20 actual parameters that you need to put in. Based on those 20 parameters, they, the, the algorithm will craft an offer for you. That offer will usually have about 100 rates that you qualify for. Of those 100 rates, About three to five make any sense. So usually, unless you put just those 20 data points, anything that you're going to get is just an approximation. It could be a long shot or it could be a closer approximation, but it's not really an offer for you. Then, usually, a mortgage broker will say, Jordan, I put all the information, this is your rate. But that's not true either. That is not your rate. This is one of the four or five or six rates that make sense to you. But nobody explains you what are the other five options. You may want to pursue them. So the mortgage is not a commodity. When you go to a website and so on and so on, that only works in a very narrow set of circumstances. If you're a W-2 employee, you've been in the same job forever, your pay has never increased, you make the same money, Yes, you could get a better approximation if like, if you're a self-employed or a
1: successful artist. I don't know if that answers the question. So in addition to the rate, what are some of the other factors that people should consider in taking one mortgage over another?
2: They should consider first and foremost, not the rate, but what they're going to use it for and how well or how bad it fits their model. Because I'll tell you something. The only time it makes any sense to refinance or any sense to look at a mortgage is if you have 1% or more difference on the rate. Meaning, you go to a mortgage broker, he says, I'll charge you five. You go to another one, he says, I'll charge you six. It sounds a lot, right? But really, to you, it's almost meaningless. Once you turn that percentage into a monthly payment, you'll see the difference is very little. So the difference is not really the rate. It's not oh, I'm going to refinance, you know, I'm going to go with this guy because he's 4.7 instead of 4.8. That is completely immaterial and completely meaningless to most people. Now, if you have a $10 million home and you have a, an 8 or $7 million mortgage, yes, that 1%, that eighth of a point, that 0.25% is going to make a difference. But even if you are at that level, even though it makes a difference to you, it's not going to make, be a difference anyhow. I don't know if that makes any sense.
1: So today, with interest rates rising, some people are switching to adjustable rate mortgages because they get a lower rate, although they're taking on more risk. What do you think about the pros and cons of adjustable versus fixed rate mortgages for somebody today? I think that
2: for most people that depend on a salary, it's not a good idea. Because, you know, when you look at a graph of the stock market, and I'm not trying to equate the stock market with mortgages, I'm just trying to, to, to show a point. You see on the graph of the stock market that, that the trend, the trend is going up. But when you start to look at what is going on, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. The trend is up, however, you have instances where the value of the stock goes down. It's the same with the mortgage. Mortgage is constantly going up and down, up and down. The trend now is going up. If you take an adjustable rate mortgage, a the future, especially between now and, two, and December of 2033, is gonna be very choppy. After December of 2033, it's gonna be super bad. So unless you're thinking about selling a home, unless you're thinking you're not gonna have it up to 2033, I would not recommend that you take an adjustable rate mortgage because you are, off, you are opening yourself to a lot of problems. If you are a high net worth individual and it's not your only house and you have other financial vehicles, and you want to save a little bit, yes. I would say you want to take an adjustable rate mortgage, do it, but for most people, I would not recommend it.
1: One of the people, those kinds of people you work with a lot are creative professionals and artists whose income may vary wildly. They have a a music video that comes out that makes a lot of money, and then they have periods between, or they're doing a movie, they make money, and then there's time between the next movie. How do you help creative people whose income is not smooth uh, to qualify for mortgages? That's a very good question because this is the public
2: that I deal with, people that have varying cash flows. You know, the income is not constant. It goes up into a windfall and go, it goes down into like a, like, a, like a throw or a depressed area, a depressed point. So what I do is this. I try to get the, the, fixed, the, the cheapest fixed rate that they can buy. And when I say they can buy, there is such a thing called a discount point. Discount point is an amount of money that you give the lender to give you a lower rate. It doesn't have to be a full point. Sometimes it only takes $200, $300, $500. Sometimes for a thousand, you can get a a reduced rate. Most mortgage brokers don't give people these options. This is one of the, remember what I was saying about four or five rates that make any sense? This is within those options. Why? Because if you can pay $500 or $600 and get a lower rate, why not? That's one thing. The other thing we do is we separate impounds. Impounds is a word that means that your taxes and insurance are included in the payment. It gets a little confusing because this thing has three names. It's called impound account. It's called reserve account. And um, it's called an escrow account. Yeah. But this is what happens. Let's say that your mortgage payment is $4,000. That's the payment and principal. And let's say that taxes and insurance are another 1000 so that's 5,000, right? If you include, and most mortgage brokers don't even explain this to the borrower. If you include taxes and insurance, now your minimal obligation every month is going to be 5,000. If you take them out of the payment, that doesn't mean that you don't have to pay them. You still have to pay them. But now you manage that cash flow instead of the servicer. So now your bill is going to be 4,000. And it has many, many positive a results, in my opinion, to a person that has a variable income. Number one, the minimum that you can pay goes down from five to 4000 Number two, people are usually more efficient at managing their cash flow vis-a-vis the servicer. The servicer is just going to stick it there. It's not going to give you any money. And since, and since uh, business people work with cash flow, that money for taxes and insurance that you can juggle with is going to generate you more money rather than sitting doing nothing at the servicer, and also increasing your liability every month. And another thing I want to say is this. When you get the mortgage uh, coupon and it says $4,000, that's the minimum. It doesn't mean that you cannot pay more, but you cannot pay less. So to answer your question, we try to reduce the rate by buying it down when it makes sense for a sensible amount, then we separate escrow or impound accounts from the payment. So now your credit report shows that you have a lower payment, your DTI is not as high, and you're you're more, in my opinion, safer and more protected because now you can always make that payment versus having higher payment. And number three, now you have more money to invest in your business. You can use that cash flow to a greater benefit. So this is one of the things that come to mind.
1: How do mortgage lenders look at applicants who have variable income, as I said, like creative people that do, do really well and then they don't do well. Is there something that mortgage lenders can look past the fluctuations of it and still lend to them? Most
2: mortgage lenders try to avoid those those borrowers. They think that they are risky. They think, they, they think that they are risky. That's the long and the short of it. I have a complete different opinion, but that's what they think. Well, are they wrong? In my opinion, they are dead wrong. In my opinion, a salaried employee that makes a salary. I'll, I'll tell you a little story, if I may. I remember a long time ago, I went to a big bank with my mom. You know, she wanted to apply for a credit card, which she got. And then we just, we're just we just talking, and the bank employee starts to say that, it, it, I wasn't asking him for anything. He just freely wanted to give me this information. He says that he makes $50,000 a year, which he considered to be a high salary. And then he said that his debts were 40000 And then that he said his credit score was like, Seven, in the 700s. And I was thinking to myself, how come someone who makes 50000 have a debt of 40000 he can be fired any minute and still have a high credit score. But to the, to the computer, to the algorithm, to the regular lender, he's okay. Now, contrast that to the business owner who he's right there on the street fighting for his income, making it out of thin air, really making things go right. The guy doesn't even have the dead load that the the employee has. He cannot be fired. He's creating his job every day. So in my opinion, if I had to lend money to either one of them, it was my money, I would say I'm never going to lend it to that guy that can fire any minute and he won't be able to pay his credit card. I'll give it to the hustler because I know that even if he goes down, he'll pay me.
1: But that's not how lenders think. What has been the impact of the pandemic on lending? Has it made lenders more conservative and more worried? I mean, businesses, restaurants and so on went out of business very quickly during the pandemic. Yes.
2: Um, Oddly enough, it's made some people really rich, believe it or not. And some people have fared very well with the pandemic. So as long, you know, the lenders don't really care about that. As long as your numbers look okay, whether you were affected by the pandemic or not, they
1: don't really care. Well, but I mean, that was a reason why a lot of businesses went out of business And then came back restaurants would be a good example they closed completely for a year and now they've come back and are are popular again don't the lenders understand what happened unfortunately the lenders don't think every time that you open the
2: door for a lender to think you run into trouble believe it or not lenders don't like to think they don't like to work extra they don't like to think and they don't like to structure anything that is out of the ordinary i'm not saying everyone but the majority
1: but there are other lenders more than the traditional ones that will uh, kind of customize the mortgage for the borrower. Is that correct? Yes, there is a niche of lenders
2: that understands everything that I've been talking about, and they are totally okay uh,
1: working with this type of borrowers. And those are the lenders that we deal with. So th- tell me about those. Are non-traditional lenders? What kind of people are they, or what kind of institutions are non-traditional lenders like that? They are business people, and this is what they do they
2: take the non-traditional loans, they package them, and then they sell them. And then they sell them into the market. Wall Street is hungry. There is so much money in the world. Um, the, the appetite for an instrument is so huge that these people, what they do, they package these loans, they offer them in the international market
1: or on Wall Street, and they get gobbled up. Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Alejandro Zita, He is the president of Prosperity Lending, uh, helps people get mortgages who might have difficulty otherwise. Their website, ProsperityLending.us. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you,
4: Voice America Business Network.
5: own it outright in five to seven years call truth and equity 888-262-5540 or visit truth eight 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 two six two five five four zero. 888-262-5540 jordan goodman is an affiliate he recognizes quality solutions forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Alejandro Zita. He is the president of Prosperity Lending. You can find out more at his website, prosperitylending.us. Welcome back to the show, Alejandro. Pleasure to be here, Jordan. So you mentioned something about after uh, 2033, things are going to be very bad. What, yes. What is your long-term outlook for the economy that would have you say something like that?
2: Actually, I, I cannot take credit for this. This is the prediction from Martin Armstrong. Martin Armstrong, it's a very famous hedge fund a, a, a manager. And um, basically, he's, he is the person that I follow. You know, I've been doing this for 40 years, and out of everyone that I've ever read, his predictions and his rationale and his models are the ones that i believe are the most accurate so basically he predicts that the system as we have it today you know i don't know if you hear or you go to the uh, uh, to this these uh, other blogs there are, there is a whole uh, uh, there is a whole parallel uh, parallel uh, 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 alternative blogosphere where you see all sorts of theories about what is going to happen to the dollar, what is going to happen to the economy, and and so on. Of all of those theories, they all agree on one thing. They all agree that the current situation is unsustainable. And they all have different predictions. This is going to happen. That is going to happen. However, when you go to Martin Armstrong, and by the way, I'm not an affiliate. I don't have any relationship with him. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. You know, This is just my own personal um, Uh, my own personal study he says that the the endless borrowing you know because usually and this is not just of the us this is of most countries the endless borrowing and never paying back is going to come to a head in december of 2033 and then the economic system is going to change this has happened by the way many many times and i was seven I happened and I witnessed this myself in Chile, because I come from Chile. So many people in America have never seen it, because up until now, and up until December of 2033, this really has never happened. But this has happened in other countries, and I saw it happening in my country, where the the currency changes, it becomes a different type of currency, where the values change, where the economic system that we have changed. And that's
1: my guiding principle and that's what I tell my clients. I said whatever you so, so what does that mean? We're gonna default on the national debt. We, people won't accept dollars. What what does it mean in practical terms what you're talking about? I'll tell you what I saw. This is what it means in practical terms. When I was
2: seven, we had a 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 monetary currency in Chile. That monetary currency was replaced by another one. You know, we have the 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 escudo escudo that means the shield in English it was replaced by the peso so when the change came it was one peso will equal a thousand escudos so basically if you had a thousand escudos in your savings accounts now it became one peso you know so every pricing everything got three zeros taken out and the name of the currency changed. By the way, this didn't just happen in Chile, it happened in Brazil, it has happened in Germany, it has happened in France, it has happened in Spain, and so on and so on. So this is not a unique thing. So what happens is this, if you were a saver, and you had a lot of escudos saved, all of a sudden you had a lot less. If you owed money, you know, you had hundreds of thousands in debt, all of a sudden your debt reduced. Now, for the first three months where this conversion took place, People still thought in the older currency. So even though you had these pesos going around that were less in numbers, you were still thinking, oh, well, these less numbers mean these thousands and thousands of escudos. So for the first three months, nothing changed. But after, in the fourth month, now people started to think on the new unit of currency. So your savings became meager and meager and meager until it then dwindled into nothing, and your debts became less and less and less until they're doing it into nothing so you might think well this is great for the people that owe money because now they're not going to owe anything and it's bad for the people that save money but this is the thing every economy everywhere in the world no matter the system no matter if you're in a capitalist communist socialist whatever you depend on savings savings and debts they go hand in hand it's like a coin that has two sides when you affect one side of the coin inevitably you do the other and when you do that everyone loses
1: i don't know if that makes any sense so so how would this are you saying that the us dollar is going to change to a new currency and they're going to take away the zeros how would this work in the us in 10 years
2: well now i'm going to guess what i described to you earlier is what i saw now i'm going to guess this is my opinion I think that the the dollar they are going to change the currency, by the way, they've been very hard at it for quite a while. This is not new. Uh, They want to transform it into a digital currency, but regardless of the form that it takes, whether it's a dollar, whether it's digital, whether it's paper, whatever, most likely what is going to happen is this. They're going to create a new currency. They're going to say this new currency is worth more, 10 or 100 or 1,000. That would depend on the level of inflation that we get to in December of 2033 and i'll give you an example if buying a loaf of bread in 2033 or a box of cereal is going to be a thousand dollars probably the conversion is going to be the same one that i witnessed in chile a thousand to one if the box of cereal is only a hundred bucks probably it's not going to be a thousand probably it's going to be two zeros that they take out does that make sense
1: Yep. Yeah. So one alternative to the currency has been cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Ethereum and so on. Do you think that uh, that's, that's a place people should put their money to avoid what's about to happen 10 years from now?
2: You know, I was very excited about when cryptocurrency came in. Uh, I thought it was the wave of the future. But then fur- further, further reading into it and studying and, being a, and buying and selling cryptocurrency myself dissuade me of that idea. I think that we need to go to history to see how people have resolved this problem because this problem has happened in the past many, many, many times over the thousands of years that we've been on this earth. The way people have solved them is they buy tangible things. That's why people are flocking into property because if you have $100,000 today that you got, let's say, from a loan or from a grant or something, you know that if it sits in your checking account, it's just going to disappear. So people put it on a house. And that's a little bit what I was referring to at the beginning that people are trying to do something with their money and acquire a real object that gives that preserves the value of that currency so i think buying physical objects i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend cryptocurrency personally for many reasons that we don't have the time to go over right now but i would recommend things like a house i would recommend things like food a car some silver gold if you can get hold of it something that is actually has a physical existence
1: and that's because of inf- you're saying they're inflating away the value of the currency, is what you're saying? Yes. And that means the value of hard assets goes up because they can't create gold out of thin air, the way they can create currency out of thin air, that's what you're saying?
2: Yes, and when everything collapses, the only thing that matters is what you can exchange.
1: And those things are physical. But you can't exchange a house. I mean, gold maybe you could, but I mean, some physical things, it, you know... No, no, but, not they, liquid.
2: <laughs> but, but, you know, I'll tell you a very interesting story. I know, I know we don't have much time. My grandfather is from Hungary. He used to have an apartment in Hungary. The apartment was confiscated by the communist government in the 50s, and he lost it. Then much, much, much later in the 80s, he got he get a letter from the Hungarian government. Hey, you know, we want to give you your apartment back. Are you interested? Sign this piece of paper, we'll give you your apartment back. That was illegally expropriated. So when you have a house, you have a real asset. You can have uh, uh, borders, you know, you can make a little, you know, money that way. And then even if they confiscated, you could get it back.
1: So other than buying hard assets, how should people prepare over the next 10 years for what you think is going to be happening at the end of uh, 2033?
2: Find a profession, find your niche, find something that you can do for people, integrate in your local community. Meet people more face to face. Don't depend so much on the Internet. You know, find, create real relations with real people because that group, that close-knit group is what is going to allow you to survive and thrive.
1: So in the the small time we have left, why don't you kind of summarize the opportunity today for people particularly to get mortgages that may think very difficult to get? If you are able, if you
2: have the money and if you have the the down payment and if you have the resources to actually get a house and you've been thinking about it for a while, Give us a chance, you know. I respond to all my emails or all our phone calls. We help you, you know, see if you can qualify and get it. And that's, a, a good, in my opinion, a good hedge against, not just because of the, what is going to happen in 10 years, but in general, in any scenario, in any economy. Do you deal with people all over the country or just California? We're licensed in, in, in California and in Florida. We have other licenses coming in other states, but for now it's California and Florida.
1: So those are the only two places that you can help people.
2: If it's a business loan, meaning it's, if it's a property not for residential, I can help them pretty much all over the U.S., except for five states. One of them is Oregon. But if it's residential, if the person, if the person is going to live in there, California and Florida. If you're going to rent it or you're going to use it for business, pretty much all over the country.
1: So in general, you're giving a hopeful message with doom uh, certain to happen in 10 years. Is that right? Yes.
2: But this is part of the human condition. This, this is not unique to us. This has been going on and on and on in the history of humanity, by the way. It's just that we happen to be at this point in time right now.
1: So you're, you're short-term hopeful, long-term very pessimistic. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, but there is hope because when, when the... I don't want to say it the way they say it, but when everything hits the fan, that's an opportunity to begin again, you know, and to create a
1: proper system that doesn't have all these problems. Very good. All right, well, thank you so much. My guest this hour has been Alejandro Zita. He is the president of Prosperity Lending. He helps people get mortgages that might have difficult doing so otherwise. You can find out more at his website, which is prosperitylending.us. Thanks so much. We learned a lot the last hour, Alexander. Alejandro. Thank you, Jordan. A pleasure to be here. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Money After Show. Bye right, for now.